This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 123, for broadcast on the 30th of October, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, new questions as to whether lightning strikes on Venus, could Arakoth's large mound structures have a common origin, and NASA selects Lockheed Martin to help develop a nuclear-powered rocket. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study has raised some questions about whether the thick acidic cloud cover which shrouds the planet Venus generates significant amounts of lightning. The new findings reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters suggest that Earth's sister planet may be a slightly gentler place than some scientists give it credit for. The study's lead author, Harriet George, from the University of Colorado Boulder, says there's been debate over lightning on Venus for close to 40 years now. Venus is one of the most mysterious and inhospitable worlds in our solar system. It's called Earth's sister planet because it's about the same size as the Earth. It was formed in the same part of the solar system under similar conditions and out of the same materials. However, Venus's dense carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere has created a runaway greenhouse effect. That atmosphere is 100 times the atmospheric pressure at sea level on Earth, and anyone standing on the surface of Venus would also face searing temperatures of over 480 degrees Celsius. That's hot enough to melt lead. So, a visit to Venus could see you crushed, boiled and fried all at the same time. Even stranger, Venus rotates backwards. That means the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. But that rotation rate is so slow, a day on Venus is actually longer than a Venusian year. No spacecraft has ever survived more than a few hours on the planet's surface. So, to explore this extreme world, NASA turned to a spacecraft that wasn't even designed to study Venus, the Parker Solar Probe, which was launched back in 2018 on a seven-year mission to investigate the physics of the sun's outer atmosphere, the corona, as well as the solar wind. In February 2021, Parker swooped around Venus at a distance of 2,400 kilometres. In the process, its instruments picked up dozens of what scientists call whistler waves, pulses of energy that, on Earth at least, can be kicked off by bolts of lightning. The data, however, shows that Venus's whistler waves may not actually originate from lightning, but rather from disturbances in the weak magnetic fields that envelop the planet. The new results agree with an earlier 2021 study by Mark Palupa from the University of California, Berkeley, It failed to detect any radio waves, which are usually generated by lightning strikes coming from Venus. The findings show just how little humans actually know about one of our nearest neighbours. Much of the debate about Venus and lightning dates back to 1978, when a NASA spacecraft called Pioneer Venus entered into orbit around the Earth's twisted sister. Almost immediately, the spacecraft began picking up signals of whistler waves hundreds of kilometres above the planet's surface. Now, for many scientists, these signals were reminiscent of a familiar phenomenon seen in Earth lightning. George says that on Earth, whistler waves are often but not always caused by lightning. 
Lightning strikes can jostle electrons in the planet's atmosphere, which then launch waves that spiral out into space. And these waves create the whistling tone that early radio operators on Earth could hear using headphones, hence the name whistlers. If Venus's whistler waves have a similar origin, then the planet might be a monster home for lightning, experiencing roughly seven times more lightning than we do on Earth. George says some scientists saw those signatures and then assumed that it could be lightning. But others have been pointing out that it could actually be something entirely different. And so there's been this back-and-forth ongoing debate about the signals ever since. Parker's solar probe could provide scientists with an opportunity to resolve this debate once and for all. The spacecraft is using Venus as a gravity assist seven times during its mission to the Sun. It skims above the Venusian surface to slow down and adjust its course in order to get closer and closer to the Sun. In 2021, during its fourth flyby manoeuvre, the probe got remarkably near the planet, passing into the shadow cast by Venus, a prime spot to go looking for whistler waves. To find those signals, George and colleagues used Parker's Fields Experiment, a set of electric and magnetic field sensors that stick out from the spacecraft in order to analyse signals. But when they examined a set of those whistler waves, they noticed something surprising. Venus's whistler waves are heading in the wrong direction. Instead of moving out into space, they seemed to be travelling down towards the planet's surface. They were heading backwards from what everybody had been imagining for the last 40 years. As to what's causing these backward whistler waves, well, that's still unclear. George suspects they may be emerging from a phenomenon known as magnetic reconnection, in which twisting magnetic field lines that surround Venus separate and then snap back together with exceptional explosive results. For now, researchers say they need to analyse more Whistler waves to completely rule out lightning as a cause. And they'll get their next chance in November 2024. That's when Parker makes its final pass across Venus's atmosphere, dropping down to less than 400 kilometres above the surface. It'll be an exciting time for scientists and mission managers alike. This report from Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Designed, built, and operated by the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, NASA's Parker Solar Probe is flying closer to the sun than any other spacecraft before. It will pass by the sun 24 times, solving age-old mysteries surrounding the origins of the solar wind and other activity that affects life on Earth. What makes this mission possible is a unique trajectory with flights past Venus, which shaped the probe's orbit and set its course toward the sun. Without them, there is no mission and no great discoveries. So why is Venus so important to a mission to the sun? It all comes down to power. The truth is, no rocket could supply the amount of power required to get Parker Solar Probe as close to the sun as it needs to be. So we need to borrow force from Venus. It sounds like science fiction, but in reality, spacecraft can leverage the gravity of other planets to speed up, like a slingshot, or to slow down, like tapping the brakes. This is called a gravity assist maneuver or a gravity assist. A planetary gravity assist changes a spacecraft's heliocentric speed by rotating the direction of the spacecraft's flyby velocity. Parker Solar Probe will use seven Venus gravity assist maneuvers over its mission to dive closer and closer to the sun. As Parker Solar Probe speeds towards Venus, it flies in front of the planet to slow down, kind of like swimming against a current. This actually allows the spacecraft to leave a little of its momentum with Venus as it zips by. The flyby alters Parker Solar Probe's orbit, sometimes by millions of miles, sending it closer to the sun. 
This technique is actually nothing new. In fact, several spacecraft have used gravity assists over the years, including Voyager, Messenger, and New Horizons. At its closest point within 4 million miles of the sun's surface, the probe will be moving 430,000 miles per hour, fast enough to get from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. in one second. It's all thanks to the Parker Solar Probe mission team who makes sure everything stays on track during this historic exploration. Gravity assists are part of the unprecedented, record-breaking mission to uncover the secrets of our star. For Parker Solar Probe, it's the fastest, most accurate, and most efficient way to fly. This is space-time. Still to come, could Arakoth's large mound structures have a common origin? And NASA selects Lockheed Martin to help develop a nuclear-powered rocket. All that and more still to come on space-time. Scientists think mysterious mounds which dominate the distant Kuiper Belt world of Arakoth may be the actual primordial building blocks of planetesimal construction. The Kuiper Belt is a distant ring of comets, icy debris and frozen worlds which circle the Sun out beyond the orbit of Neptune. 2014 MU69 Arakoth is a pristine 30-kilometre-wide double-lobed Kuiper Belt object. Its name means sky in the Native American Powhatan language of the Tidewater region of Virginia and Maryland. It was originally named Ultima Thurley, an ancient traditional name used to describe the most distant place known, a land well beyond the boundaries of the known world. In ancient Greek and Roman times, Ultima Thurley was the place most farthest north, now thought to be either Iceland or Greenland although both Orkney and the Shetland Islands have also been referred to as Ultima Thurley in medieval times. The new studies, based on data from the New Horizons spacecraft, which visited the frozen relic in 2019, examining 12 large mysterious 5-kilometre-long mounds that dominate the appearance of Arakoth's larger lobe, Winu, and which are all almost the same shape, size, colour and reflectivity. The study's lead author, Alan Stern, from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says the strange-looking mounds are similar enough to suggest a common origin. Stern and colleagues also tentatively identified three more mounds on the object's smaller lobe, Wiyo. The findings, reported in the Planetary Science Journal, suggest that these mounds could be Arakoth's building blocks, and they could therefore guide further work on planetesimal formational models. Arakoth's geology supports the streaming instability model for planetesimal formation. This involves collision speeds of just a few kilometres per hour, slow enough to allow objects to gently accumulate to build Arakoth in a local area of the solar nebula undergoing gravitational collapse. Stern says similarities, including in the size and other properties of Arakoth's mound structures, suggest new insights into its formation. If the mounds are indeed representative of the building blocks of ancient planetesimals like Arakoth, then planetesimal mound models will need to explain the preferred size of these building blocks. Stern says there's a possibility that some of the flyby targets of NASA's Lucy mission to Jupiter's Trojan asteroids and ESA's Comet Interceptor mission could also provide pristine planetesimals. 
These could all contribute to science's understanding of accretion of planetesimals elsewhere in the ancient solar system and whether they differ from the processes New Horizon found in the Kuiper Belt. Stern says it'll be important to search for mound-like structures on the planetesimals these missions observe to see how common this phenomenon really is and as a further guide to planetesimal formation theories. Meanwhile, NASA's announced an updated plan to continue New Horizons' mission of exploration of the outer solar system. Beginning in 2025, New Horizons will focus on gathering unique heliophysics data, which can be readily obtained during an extended low-activity mode of operations. While the science community is not currently aware of any reachable Kuiper Belt objects, the new path allows for the possibility of using the spacecraft for a future close flyby of such an object should one ever be found. It will also enable the spacecraft to preserve fuel and reduce operational complexity while a search is conducted for a new flyby candidate before the spacecraft leaves the Kuiper Belt sometime around 2028 or 29. Launched way back on January the 18th, 2006, New Horizons has helped scientists better understand worlds at the dark outer edge of our solar system. The probe made history back on July the 14th, 2015, when it became the first spacecraft to visit Pluto, flying just 12,500 kilometres above the 2,377-kilometre-wide dwarf planet's surface. The spacecraft also studied Pluto's binary partner Charon and their four tiny moons, Styx, Nix, Kerberos and Hydra. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA selects Lockheed Martin to develop a nuclear-powered rocket and later in the science report, scientists unpeel the origins of citrus fruit. All that and more still to come on Space Time. NASA and the U.S. military have selected Lockheed Martin to help them develop a new nuclear-powered rocket for missions to Mars and beyond into deep space. The Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations Program, or DRACO, could see it launch as early as 2027 using a nuclear thermal propulsion system. The nuclear thermal propulsion system works by pumping a liquid propellant such as cryogenic hydrogen through a reactor core. The reactor core contains uranium atoms split apart through fission. This would superheat the propellant, converting it into a gas, which could then be funneled through a nozzle to produce thrust. Nuclear rockets could cut journey times, increase fuel efficiency, and they'd require less propellant. It would allow greater payloads than today's best chemical rockets. It would also reduce transit times for vital human missions to Mars, thereby limiting a crew's exposure to radiation. NASA conducted its last nuclear thermal rocket engine test more than 50 years ago, but the program was abandoned due to a combination of budget cuts and Cold War tensions. The original program was called Project Orion, the same name now adopted for NASA's deep space crew capsule. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. 
A new study has shown that people who believe COVID-19 misinformation and who distrust Western medicine, believe in conspiracy theories and get their news from sources that promoted COVID-19 misinformation are the most likely to have used discredited treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on a survey of 13,438 Americans across 50 states. They found that around 1 in 20 people used ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. The authors say their findings suggest the potential harms of misinformation extend far beyond simply avoiding health-promoting behaviours such as mask-wearing and instead also include the use of ineffective treatments. A new study has found that people who smoke and vape have a higher likelihood of issues with their eyes than people who just smoke cigarettes. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looked into the effects of e-cigarettes and regular cigarettes on more than 4,350 people aged between 13 and 24. They say those who smoked just cigarettes were more likely to have eye issues such as burning, itching, redness, dryness, glare, blurriness, as well as headaches than those who only smoked e-cigarettes. But when you combine the two, it apparently led to far more frequent symptoms. Scientists have unpilled the origins of citrus fruit. A report in the journal Nature has classified the entire genetic code of 12 different species and analysed the DNA of a further 312 species to learn more about the origins of citrus fruits. The authors say it's likely the wider plant group probably emerged around the ancient Indian plate and that the genus citrus itself probably evolved in south-central China. They also checked out the genes behind citric acid in the species, finding that we can thank a gene called PH4 for the accumulation of the chemical that gives citrus fruits their zing. A new study has found that Brisbane and Sydney are probably the best Australian cities to move to if you want to survive a zombie apocalypse. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says the study was undertaken by a local real estate rental agency to drum up a little extra business. But zombies excluded, it's still based on some sound economic policies. This was a, uh, a question that was asked by a rental property search site. The fact that they might have been trying to get some publicity for their rental property search site is beside the point, but a company called Rentola did a study on Australian cities to try and find out where would be the best place to live to avoid getting attacked by zombies come the zombie apocalypse. This was following the COVID pandemic, so naturally everyone's in the mood to run away and get scared. Now, this was a real qualitative study that they did, and I use that in quotes. They were looking at five different sets of data. Vulnerability, hideouts, supplies, as in food and yeah, essential supplies, safety and mobility. And they give them a score out of 1 to 10, as Australia's capital cities, 10 being the highest. And so you look at safety as basically how well can you walk around the streets, not attacked and that sort of thing. So they looked at sort of records. And overall, in this survey, Brisbane in Queensland, in Australia's north, came out the top of the, the bunch with a score of 7.2, followed by Sydney and then Melbourne. And down the bottom of the, of the score was Australia's capital territory, which is Canberra, and Hobart, which is capital Tasmania. Now, the things they were looking at, 
these various criteria were, do you have houses and things where you can hide out, best hide out? Are you vulnerable to zombies? And are there a lot of people around you that might be zombies? And how easy is it to get supplies that you might need, food, uh, accommodation, that sort of stuff? And the interesting thing was actually, this has nothing to do with zombies. This has everything to do with population densities. Because obviously, in a non-dense area, a place where there's very few people, you're going to get a lower number of people around you. Some of them might live near you, but overall, Less you're not going to have a huge number of people. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas in the cities, of course, you have a higher population density, so naturally there's more potential zombies. And yet in the cities, of course, you've got more housing, you've probably got better supplies, you've probably got better mobility to get around. Whether uh, yes, but there'd be less access to firearms than that for defence against zombie attack. Can you attend, Can you shoot a zombie? I thought you had to bash their brains out. Oh, is that how it's so, done? Okay. Yeah, do you have Do you have less access to shovels is the real issue. Oh, it's shovels, okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically, even though this, this it's an amusing little study, you know, and it has, they're trying to get some publicity as a bit of a joke. So they're recommending you move to Brisbane, one of the big cities, because it came out the best. But really, you could have avoided well, the entire... there's a huge difference between Brisbane and... Uh... Brisbane and Sydney yeah, were at the yeah. top of the list, and but then it's a long way down to to Melbourne and uh, and Hobart and and all yeah, the others. Yeah, so. and well, yeah, the difference was seven point two at the top and uh, three point nine at the bottom. Yeah. So poor old Hobart. If you want to get eaten by zombies, that's the place to go. But it is purely density of population that it comes so, down so to. A, so I mean, answer me one question, important question: uh, Is a mummy simply a zombie who's made a fashion choice? Mummies have a problem when they come out of lifts. Because all their bandages, their wrappings get caught in the door. Ah, right. And the question is, can zombies run or are they slow walking? Because modern zombies in newer films can run. Ah. Whereas the old story was that if I'm being, if, if I'm with you and we're being chased by zombies, I what I do is I trip you up. Than, yes, yes. Just... No, I just trip you up. <laughs> Even better. Even <laughs> better. So, you know, that's, that's the way to do it. Yes. You don't, have to, you don't have to run faster than the line. You just have to run faster than the other guy. That's right. Yeah. It's a cute little study. It's, it's amusing. But I could have got there a lot faster without going through all the criteria they talk about. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
And Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.